0: Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, formerly Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to health and wellbeing, featuring interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer turned nutritionist, and I have a very deep curiosity about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I will note that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to treat any medical conditions, and it is never a substitute for advice from your own health professional. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Amanda Hutchinson. She's a clinical psychologist with roles in both teaching and research at the University of South Australia. Amanda is dedicated to improving the quality of life of cancer survivors and reducing the psychosocial burden of cancer. She also uses her training in clinical psychology to support students to reach their full potential while maintaining physical and mental health. And to that end, she's supervised more than 50 student research projects and is currently supervising students in the areas of cancer survivorship, health behaviour, and clinical psychology. Amanda's research interests include cancer survivorship, health behaviours, cancer related cognitive impairment, and body dissatisfaction, sun exposure and skin cancer prevention. So we're in for a really interesting episode today. And just before I start chatting with Amanda, I'd like to set the scene about cancer in Australia. In very basic terms, cancer is a diverse group of several hundred diseases in which some of the body's cells become abnormal and they begin to multiply out of control. The abnormal cells can then invade and damage the tissues around them, including other organs, and they spread to parts of the body, causing further damage and, if untreated, eventually death. The estimated number of cancer cases diagnosed in Australia in 2020 was 145,483. The estimated number of deaths from cancer in that same year was 48,099. In Australia, the chance of surviving cancer of any form for at least five years is 69%. And just specifically in relation to skin cancer, it is one of Australia's most common cancers and Australia and New Zealand, unsurprisingly I suppose, have the highest rates of skin cancer in the world. Skin cancer accounts for 80% of all new cases of cancer diagnosed in Australia each year and more than 11,500 Australian men and women are diagnosed with a melanoma each year. And in addition to that, an estimated 434,000 people are treated for one or more non-melanoma skin cancers each year. And I'll ask Amanda to clarify the different types of skin cancer for us. Today I'm here with Dr. Amanda Hutchinson, clinical psychologist, teacher and researcher at the University of South Australia. Hi, Amanda. Hi. (laughs) Good name. Absolutely. Easy to remember. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. So taking inspiration from Tegan Taylor and Dr. Norman Swan's CoronaCast, Quickfire Friday, do you listen to that at all?
1: I do, when I can.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great uh, summary of what's going on in coronavirus land. So they do this Quickfire Friday where they ask some quick questions. So I thought, no, let's do that so we can get to know you a little bit. So Amanda, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Adelaide, South Australia. Excellent. And what is your favourite form of exercise? Uh, I probably prefer either walking
1: or running on the treadmill, mm-hmm. but uh, preferably with music
0: going. So you like your headphones on while you're... Definitely. Yeah. Do you have, or can you name a few of your favourite bands?
1: Oh, I can. I have quite eclectic tastes, so oh. it's hard to know which ones to yes. choose. Um, but in summer, I went to a concert with uh, John Butler, Missy Higgins
0: and the Cat oh, Empire, and that was brilliant. a pretty good day. So. Oh, Missy Higgins is amazing, isn't she? I she do love wonderful. her. She's wonderful are you a dog or a cat person?
1: I really love both.
0: I thought you might say that.
1: <laughs> much to my children's disgust, we can't have a dog or a cat due to allergies in the family. Oh, so yes, uh, yeah, they, they keep asking though.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can get some dogs are sort of hypoallergenic.
1: Yes, we supposedly. haven't we haven't had a lot of luck for some of our relatives, right. but we'll keep we'll keep trying. Yeah,
0: our dog Lenny, he's an adult terrier. He's supposed to be I okay. mean, I don't know because we don't have allergies, so it's not been tested. Sure. Um, and what's your go-to meal for dinner? Just an everyday meal that you would cook for your uh, family.
1: Everyday meal that everybody likes would be
0: uh, probably burritos. Ah, that's popular in my household as well. And Amanda, your favourite holiday destinations are first in Australia and then outside Australia.
1: Um, look, holidays are great almost anywhere, yeah. but uh, one of my favourites in Australia would have to be Darwin. Excellent. Had some lovely, lovely times in Darwin with family. Um, and outside of Australia, I would probably choose the
0: Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, special wow. place. Not that we can travel at the moment, but just it's always nice to dream, isn't it? We'll get there again one day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. So, Amanda, you studied psychology. And what was your interest or what drew you towards that?
1: So interestingly, I started university with the plan to be a high school teacher.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I was planning to uh, teach maths and English. And so to fill up my, um, my study load, I took uh, introductory psychology and just found that I loved it. I found it so interesting um, and it was so relevant to everyday life. And from there, I just kept going. Wow! Um, I discovered that university maths was not my thing, um, and so pursued psychology, and then went on to do a master's in clinical psychology, mm-hmm. followed by a PhD. So uh, I took it took it about as far as I could wow. in terms of
0: in terms of study. Well, it sounds like that was very lucky for you. You almost fell on your feet, just
1: yeah, absolutely. Mm. I I had other people tell me that they had enjoyed mm-hmm. psychology, and they were. I guess like-minded people. So that may have been a clue, but it certainly yeah. wasn't wasn't a plan from the outset.
0: Yeah, I think my daughter who's in year 12, she's studying psychology. But I'm pretty sure when I was back at school that wasn't an option. No, it wasn't
1: uh, wasn't an option for me either. Yeah. Um I do think there's a lot of pressure actually on on students who are finishing high school to know exactly what they yeah. what they want to do and I feel very fortunate that I had the opportunity to explore some different ideas.
0: Yeah, it is a definitely tricky for them. I agree. And I think um my daughter is quite interested in pursuing psychology, so we'll see how that goes. So you're currently involved in both teaching and research at the University of South Australia and your areas of expertise include, amongst other things, uh, cancer survivorship and skin cancer prevention. So cancer survivorship, I think, is a really fascinating area because we hear so much about prevention and treatment and then you don't hear a lot about what happens afterwards. So what drew you towards that?
1: Look, it was an area, um, I knew that I wanted to work in an area that combined my skills in clinical psychology, in helping and supporting people um, in some area of health. But initially, um, a job was advertised that uh, was a postdoctoral research position um, with the Cancer Council mm-hmm. and Flinders University, and I thought that was a great opportunity. So there was, there was part of me saying, this would be a fit, but it wasn't the one thing that I wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some knowledge of cancer and knew that it was a significant problem. Um, for individuals as well as society on a larger scale Um, but really for those first few years my knowledge was primarily theoretical Mm -hmm. knowledge and just a desire to make a difference to do something uh, worthwhile. Um, Sadly over the last decade that theoretical knowledge has become more personal um, Mm -hmm. with more family and friends experiencing cancer and so I guess that just further motivates me to try and do research that will lead to meaningful change uh, and improve outcomes
0: for cancer patients. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost impossible to get into midlife and not know someone who's been affected by cancer I Certainly, think, yeah. it, it is
1: a, a disease of ageing. So as people mm. get older, their, their risk for, for cancer, unfortunately, increases. And, yeah. and you're right, it really is unusual as you get older to, to not, be, um, to not experience, experience it in one way or another.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, what are some of the psychological issues that people who come through cancer face?
1: Look, they vary a lot, mm. and I, I think the first thing to say is that the impact of cancer varies a lot from individual to individual. Uh, people respond quite individually. Um, having said that, some common issues uh, that arise are anxiety, a lot of yep. worry about about the cancer or about what the future may hold. Uh, some people experience depression, um, and another quite common one is something called fear of cancer recurrence which is what it sounds like yeah the fear for people that have had cancer that that cancer will either come back yeah uh, or that it will progress to a more advanced stage so um, certainly anxiety depression um, grief all of those things are a common part of of the cancer experience but not for everyone not yeah. exclusively
0: it certainly makes sense I can really understand how that fear of it coming back. I mean, it'd be pretty hard, I expect, to overcome that. Definitely.
1: And people need to have often uh, ongoing scans at different mm. points to to have sort of checkups, even if they've uh, not had um, any cancer for some time. And just having another scan can lead to a lot of worry, a lot yeah. of the what ifs, what if it comes back, what will that mean? So learning strategies and tools to help manage that that fear and that worry um, is, is really important. Mm.
0: And I also think the fear of, apart from it coming back, but the fear of having to go through that treatment process again, I think I certainly know that was something for, for my aunt who sadly passed away um, several years ago now. But she, when her cancer came back, she at first she thought, I don't want to go through that treatment again. She did in the end, but that was a huge worry for her. Understandably, the the side effects of of treatment can be significant. Yeah. And would you say that those kind of anxiety or depression or fear of it coming back, they're more, are they at increased risk of people who have um, come through or survived cancer than people in the general population?
1: Yes. So prevalence of anxiety and depression tends to be higher Mm. um, in people with cancer compared to the general population. But the estimates vary quite a lot and I think uh, part of that is because cancer type and the cancer stage play a significant role in that as well as the sorts of supports and resources that are available for Mm -hmm. people. So, uh, for example, if somebody has advanced disease and and lives in a rural area, they may need to uh, travel to to the city for treatment and then not be part of their normal support network so that it really can... um, vary depending upon some of those clinical characteristics as well as the social uh, factors.
0: Yeah, of course. You, I mean, one of the things you look at is the psychosocial because obviously that's all related, isn't it? Definitely. Um, the
1: the importance of social support, it's something that we see time and time again, mm-hmm. that people who are well supported and connected and part of, part of a sort of cohesive social network um, tend to do do better both emotionally and and physically yeah
0: I mean that's true of life in general I would say isn't it Um, certainly there's certainly research coming out now about how important those social connections are for people and obviously during the COVID pandemic and lockdowns we've seen a lot of the impact of social isolation yes I think
1: I think we can all uh, empathize in a new way with people who are socially isolated following the
0: pandemic For uh, friends and family of someone who has gone through cancer, what are some of the signs they can look out for to basically to make sure that their loved one is okay or conversely may need some help?
1: Well, if people notice that um, the person that they care for is uh, particularly withdrawn, Mm -hmm. perhaps that they've lost interest in things that they would normally enjoy, um, that they seem to really be struggling, um, then those are the sorts of things that may indicate that some professional support yeah. may be useful. Um, having said that, of course, responding to a diagnosis of cancer is a really big thing. And so yeah. we expect people to find that difficult. So there are two sides of it, I guess. If it's maintained over time and if it's really impacting that person's ability to function, mm-hmm. relate to others, then seeking support is is recommended. In the short term, as I said, getting a diagnosis of cancer is challenging. So if people need support in the short term without it being something that might be clinically diagnosed depression, support is also available for that and there are lots of people and resources available. So um, certainly there are online resources Mm -hmm. and uh, helplines as well as more professional support uh, like um counselors and psychologists right. and so on
0: where would you recommend people look for that kind of support
1: i think one of the first places to go for information or um responses to general queries about what's available mm-hmm. the cancer council yeah. is always a really useful uh, resource um and they have a cancer uh, helpline which um which people can contact okay um if uh, people are wanting more ongoing yep. support, then talk to if, if somebody is a current cancer patient mm-hmm. and has a treatment team, they could speak to a member of that treatment team. So that might be a cancer nurse or an right. oncologist. Um, but your GP is always a really yeah. good starting point, And GPs can make an assessment about whether a mental health care plan yep. would be useful. And that can then be used with a referral uh, to a psychologist.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess it's very important then to just to keep thinking about what kind of support you need and finding it. And it sounds like it's available if you look. Absolutely. There are lots
1: of people who want to help. I think sometimes people are concerned that they don't want to be a burden on other people and that maybe this is something they should be able to manage on their own. But actually, this is a really challenging thing. And um, friends and family, as well as uh, professional Mm. support services, all want to help people through this this process yeah. so help is available.
0: And also it's um, whilst one person may be experiencing cancer it does impact their friends and family and their workplace and it, it has a wide reach doesn't it The the impacts of cancer I think.
1: Yes there are there are these ripple effects yeah absolutely uh, so certainly for uh, family members and carers Friends and, as you say, even work colleagues, mm. um, it can be really uh, confronting. It sometimes makes us face our own yeah. mortality, uh, as well as often wishing there was more we could do. Sometimes yeah. we feel powerless because we don't have the professional skills to be able to, you know, support from a medical point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but actually, friendship and spending time and listening uh, is probably the most helpful thing that any of us, any of us can do. Yeah,
0: I think so. I know um, I've had a number of friends now that have had cancer. One has sadly passed away, but some of them said that people were almost a bit scared of them. I guess that's because they were so worried about what they were going to say that they thought, oh, maybe I'll say nothing. I'm not, I don't know, but.
1: That's really mm, common that people will say, well, I, I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything at Mm. all, um, which is a really understandable response. From the perspective of the person with cancer, it can lead to them feeling more isolated and more alone. Um, And many people want to have an identity that is broader than someone with cancer. Absolutely. So doing something that you would normally do or, you know, going for a walk, watching a movie might be perfect without needing to necessarily address um, or spend your time talking about and thinking about cancer and health. It may actually be beneficial to take a break from that and spend some time thinking about and doing other things that are important to you.
0: I think that's really good advice because it can be all consuming. Um, And my dear friend who was very unwell, at first I I wasn't nervous to see her, but I was very nervous about what I said. And I was self-censoring everything. I didn't want to make it sound like I was having a fun, normal life. So I'd try not to tell her what I'd been up to. But she was very honest. And she said, I want to know. Yes. Tell me. So, so that kind of broke the ice a bit. And we went back to our sort of old friendship and just talked about everything. That's great. Mm. I think it mirrors uh, what I do clinically when I'm talking to somebody
1: or working with someone and I'm not sure where to go next. If we go back to listening or asking a question, you know, people people are often really willing to tell us what it is that they need. Mm. Um, and so when we're not sure what to say, listening and saying, what would be helpful, what could we do that, that you would enjoy or that yeah. would be most helpful for you right now is probably the best place to start. Yeah,
0: well, that's very good advice. Amanda, you also look at changes in cognitive function post-cancer, so I was wondering, what can be the causes of that? Is could it be the treatment, the cancer itself, or, or both?
1: So this is a really big question. Okay, <laughs> I didn't realise um, as I asked. Uh, mm. It used to be called uh, chemo brain because okay. it was first noticed in um, mostly women with breast cancer who had undergone chemotherapy that they were having problems with attention, with um, memory, decision making, a whole range mm-hmm. of cognitive cognitive tasks. Um, So that's why it was sort of colloquially referred to as chemo brain initially. Now it tends to be called cancer brain or Mm -hmm. cancer related cognitive impairment, because there have been some studies done that have shown that some people, not all people, but some people with cancer actually demonstrate these problems with memory and attention and so on before they commence the treatment. Right. So it's really unclear whether the cognitive impairments are driven by the cancer itself, by the cancer experience and the Mm -hmm. distress that, that goes along with that diagnosis, or by the treatment. And what's most likely is that there's a little bit of all of those. Yeah.
0: Well, that makes sense, I think, because probably the anxiety around the treatment and all the things you have to do and the way you have to completely upend your life, basically. That's a lot to hold in your mind. It is a lot to hold in your mind. And, and people also uh,
1: often have trouble with sleep. You know, for those, mm. if, if people are very worried, um, medical appointments, different treatments yep. also will affect sleep. It may affect diet. It may affect a whole range of aspects of your lifestyle as well as that psychological uh, distress mm-hmm. that goes along with the diagnosis. So we do know that for some treatments, the outcomes seem to be to be worse. So some types of chemotherapy are more likely to lead to these cognitive problems, but it is certainly not a one-size-fits-all,
0: and it's not solely the treatment that's, that's causing these problems. And the next thing I was going to ask, which you've sort of already answered, but where the cancer is may not necessarily impact the um, the cancer brain or the chemo brain. But if someone has cancer that's somehow related to their brain, is that more likely to cause those problems?
1: Certainly if people have a brain tumour mm-hmm. in particular regions of the brain, yeah. that can impact upon cognitive performance um, and the specific... Uh, impairment or problems that they experience will vary depending upon the location of that sure. of that brain tumor. Um, similarly, uh, radiation therapy directly to the brain mm-hmm. will also have an impact on cognition. Um, so it it does it it can vary depending mm-hmm. upon the cancer as well as as well as the
0: type of treatment. Sure, I mean that obviously makes sense. Is that cognitive impairment something that? Assuming the patient survives, they can rectify over the years?
1: Yes. So Mm. for most people, um, the cognitive impairments improve over time. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly a year to 18 months post-treatment, we see an improvement. Unfortunately, there is a subset of patients where it persists for a longer period of time Um, but we're learning more and more about how people can uh, strategies people can Mm -hmm. use to lessen the impact and to support that recovery in terms of uh, their cognitive ability so there are things that people can do to uh, improve that or if they're beginning treatment to hopefully uh, lessen the impact yeah Of the cancer and its
0: treatment. Well, that's good news. So in terms of people that have survived cancer, what are some of the recommendations or lifestyle choices they can make to improve their chances of um, ongoing good health?
1: Sure. So, so there are a few, and some of them will be really familiar mm-hmm. to people because they tend to be the things that support our general yep. health and well-being. So, healthy diet mm-hmm. is an important um, thing that people can do. Particularly at the moment, the most evidence is around intake of fruit and vegetables. Right. Um, physical activity. This is really. Big, and Mm -hmm. uh, every time I look at the uh, scientific literature, there's more evidence supporting um, physical activity. So, um, exercise we know will help people with their mood, uh, with their energy. So, people often have trouble with fatigue following cancer treatment as well, uh, and with cognition with memory attention concentration and so on as well as supporting their physical health as yes. they as they recover so exercise is a big one um and it doesn't need to be going to the gym and sort of high intensity exercise often um the recommendations are just to start walking right. do something get moving as soon as as soon as people are able to um meditation or mindfulness is really helpful in managing uh stress mm-hmm. and the emotional impact um and to be honest, having cognitive problems, experiencing these challenges with memory can be really upsetting. So mindfulness can be a useful strategy. I acknowledge, I know it's not for everybody, but for people that find that that fits well with them, um, there there is increasing evidence that that's a really useful strategy. Um, And then there are some specific strategies related to cognitive performance. So simple things like using diaries, reminders, alarms, things like that to help people manage their day-to-day. That will reduce the impact of the cognitive impairment. Sure. Um, But also providing yourself with a a cognitive challenge is really useful. So that might be something like learning a new language, Mm -hmm. learning a musical instrument. Uh, Some people really love crossword puzzles and things like that the main thing is to choose something that will provide you with a slight challenge you don't need to go to something overly uh, complex uh, to get the benefits, but something that will provide some challenge and really importantly, something that you enjoy. So if you hate doing crossword puzzles, don't (laughs) feel like you need to spend an hour a day doing crossword puzzles, but find something that that you enjoy that will allow you to uh, use use your brain Mm -hmm. in, in new and
0: different ways. Which is, as you said, good for your brain in any event. Absolutely, yeah. and
1: in fact, a lot of these strategies overlap with the um, recommendations for prevention of dementia yeah. and other cognitive cognitive impairment.
0: What about reading? Is that would that be counted towards something to challenge you cognitively?
1: Reading is a great one. Um, Some people, if they've had trouble with concentration, Mm -hmm. find that they can't do it for long periods of time. So it might be something that people need to experiment with. You know, do audiobooks work better? It might be reading in short segments or reading short stories. Um, I've even got a student at the moment who's going to be doing some work looking at having people read to them on a regular basis um, during cancer treatment rather Mm -hmm. than during this uh, survivorship stage necessarily. But, um, you know, there are a whole range of different approaches. So it's probably a case of trial and error to see what works.
0: Well, what you just said, reading to someone during treatment, well, that's a lovely way you could help a friend or loved one, isn't it? Really do something useful.
1: Definitely, and the mm. lovely thing about that is it ticks two boxes. Yeah, you know, it also provides that social connection, that relationship, and that support.
0: Mm. Because when someone's having chemo, they're they're sort of stuck to one spot, really, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and finding things to do that are engaging and enjoyable, yeah, during that time can can be can be a challenge.
0: And hopefully, taking your mind off a little bit what's what's happening. Sure. Mm. Uh, And, Amanda, the other area of one of your many, I might say, areas of expertise is skin cancer. So living in Australia, as we do, we hear that slip, slop, slap message, um, and most schools now have a no-hat, no-play policy. So there is um, obviously in the community an awareness between the relationship between sun exposure and skin cancer. But I imagine that not all of us really understand the mechanism between sun exposure and how that can cause cancer and obviously that's complex but could you try and explain that to us i guess in lay terms or in simple terms so why does getting sunburnt or having excessive sun exposure heighten your risk for skin cancer
1: Look, it is a complex uh, process and, and not one that I'm necessarily well qualified to to provide, but uh, the important message really is that exposure to UV radiation from the sun causes damage to the skin mm-hmm. um, and that, that then increases your risk of skin cancer later in life. So it's not necessarily um, a short-term mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's actually there can be quite a long long time between the sun exposure or the sunburn and then the development of of skin cancer so you know sunburn in childhood mm. can significantly increase risk for skin cancer later in life so i think that's why messages like slip slop uh, Slap, and they've now got seek and slide. Oh, that's right. Yes, I missed those. Um, they can be really important because uh, in our childhood and adolescence and young adulthood, um, we're not necessarily thinking about long-term health consequences.
0: Definitely uh, not.
1: So, encouraging those health behaviours from an early age yeah. uh, is an important important part of preventing preventing skin cancer.
0: The message has really changed. When I was at high school. Uh, we had none of those messages getting out into the community, and we used to sit on the side of the building and hitch up our skirts and put baby oil on our legs. Which, oh, it just makes me shudder to think of that. I, I don't think kids would do that today, or they'd get told off by the teacher if they tried. That's, I think you're right. Um... Interestingly, sort of the late
1: adolescence and young adulthood is an area that we're particularly interested Mm. in because that's when people start to make choices for themselves. Yes. Uh, So once people transition out of that high school setting where there are clear rules and expectations and it's a time when appearance is really important. So we, we do see that there are quite a number of people still, unfortunately, who will deliberately expose themselves to the sun in order to achieve that that tanned appearance. I think
0: where for young people there is a real sense of it won't happen to me so that's why the message is obviously so important and I do want to delve into that a bit more but before we do that I wondered if you could explain to me or to our listeners sorry the difference between melanoma and non-melanoma. So uh, non-melanoma skin
1: cancers are a lot more prevalent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the challenges, I mean, it's great that uh, they can be fairly easily treated. They're less likely to spread. And um, many people may have had experience of having a a skin cancer, a non-melanoma skin cancer removed. Um, In contrast, a melanoma skin cancer um, is less common. But the outcomes, unfortunately, are a lot worse. It's more likely to spread, mm-hmm. and uh, people are at, at greater risk of, unfortunately, of dying from that from that cancer and the and the associated uh, metastases potentially. So one of the challenges we face is that we become exposed to people being fine having had a non-melanoma skin cancer removed and so i think there's a risk that we become complacent about that about checking our skin about um talking to the to our gp or or a specialist Mm -hmm. about getting our our skin checked uh, for skin cancers um because that's a a common experience certainly here in australia but those those melanoma skin cancers really need to be identified as early as possible, um, in order in order to prevent those those outcomes that I was talking about earlier. Mm.
0: So the earlier the detection, obviously the better chance of survival or it not um, progressing. Definitely. On the flip side of that. We do need some sun exposure. We do. um, And that is because, probably for several reasons, but one of them is that vitamin D is synthesised in the skin in the presence of UVB radiation, and deficiency of vitamin D can have some health consequences. So bearing these competing interests in mind, we need some sun exposure, but we don't want too much. Is there an optimal amount of sun exposure? Look,
1: that's, that's a good question, um, and part of the challenge is that the um, sun exposure or the UV exposure that we that we get when we're outside mm-hmm. um, varies based on where we are in the world yes. as well as the time of year. Um, excuse me. So most people living in Australia will get enough vitamin D from just incidental sun exposure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that short walk from the car park to the office building or um, those sorts of you know, short periods of time, particularly during summer, are plenty uh, for most people to get the vitamin D that they need. Um, In Adelaide, for example, most of winter the UV index is below 3. So going out into the, you know, going outside during the day in winter is is a good strategy for -hmm. for getting uh, vitamin D without having harmful levels of exposure. Um, So I guess the important message is actually that it's the UV index that's important. So even if people are wanting to get their vitamin D, if the UV index is above three, people need to engage in sun protection. So wear a hat, sunscreen, all of those slip, slop, slap messages come back into play. Um, And there are actually apps that you can get on your phone or some weather apps have it built into the information that's provided so that you can actually see what the UV index is at different times of the day. Mm -hmm. So ideally... Um, some incidental sun exposure but actually particularly in our climate here in Australia people don't need lots of sun exposure and certainly don't need to deliberately expose themselves to the sun for prolonged periods. Um, If they are worried about their vitamin D levels then speak to the to your GP yeah. about that um, they may have some alternatives like supplements or, yeah. or other strategies that they would suggest.
0: And also I think it does depend on the colour of your skin doesn't it because darker coloured um, skin requires more sun to generate that vitamin D is that correct? That's right yeah.
1: so, so darker skin has higher levels of melanin and so it's harder to uh, or that they, they have more protection. Yes. People with more melanin have more protection against that, um, that UV radiation.
0: So I was watching the news the other night and there was a segment about a new technology, a 3D scanning machine uh, to detect skin cancers. Have you heard about this? I haven't. They showed, I thought, my th- children and I thought, a poor unfortunate man standing in his underpants... <laughs> <laughs> with this machine kind of whirring around it which is supposed to photograph everything and it's meant to be an advancement uh, towards detection so that sounds pretty good
1: look it sounds it sounds like that would be a really good option particularly for people who've already had one skin cancer mm. um you know found and and uh likely removed because they're at higher risk so to have that sort of more um detailed uh, scanning is is really worthwhile but you know you raise an interesting point with the the man standing in his underwear um getting our skin checked is not it can be awkward yes so i'm i don't want to pretend that this is you know easy for everybody it can be awkward but the the reason that it's important is you know social awkwardness is worth it if it's going to absolutely save save a life uh, and prevent that suffering for an individual but also the the impact on on their family and, Mm. and so on so yes awkward and uncomfortable but definitely uh worth
0: coping with that in the short term and i must admit whenever i've seen a dermatologist which i do annually to get a mold check and things they're, they're so used to doing it they really do put you at ease definitely it's yeah.
1: we feel awkward and uncomfortable but from for the uh dermatologist point of view this is this is their every day absolutely so they're nothing not unusual they're not so judging
0: they're, us i don't think on how we look they're just Looking at all those moulds, definitely. <laughs> yeah, um, and back to you, you mentioned before, people as they become as they leave school and get a, become more independent, they make their own choices and they they come under influence from various sources about how they want to look. So my experience after living in Hong Kong it was fascinating to me because that market is a wash with skin whitening products. They're everywhere. Right. And then in Australia, it's the opposite. There's a lot of these fake tanning products um, out there. And for any mother of teenage girls, honestly, it's the bane of their existence because <laughs> you go to change the white sheets or they change them and they're covered in brown muck. Anyway, I was just wondering on your personal point of view You could sort of infer from that that we have quite a dysfunctional relationship with our skin and how it appears. And that obviously relates to bigger issues like body dissatisfaction. But let's keep our focus on skin today. So do you have a theory about why it is that we many many of us want to change how our skin looks?
1: Yes, so unfortunately, uh having this, this tanned skin, um, you know, very specific sort of ideas about what mm. the ideal skin is has become part of the ideal body image yeah. within Western culture. Yes. Um, and there is there is a model that's not my model but a model called the tripartite model which has been used to understand body image more mm-hmm. broadly. So it's actually been used a lot to understand people's um ideal body type in terms of shape and size but we also find that it can explain people's dissatisfaction with their skin tone Mm -hmm. and according to that model there are several influences on how we perceive body image or what we perceive as the ideal Mm -hmm. body image and those influences are our family uh, our friends, and the media. So the attitudes portrayed by those groups, as well as the behaviours that we see in our friends, family, and the media. And and when I say media, I guess I'm referring to what's seen on TV, in movies, magazines, but also now social media. Yeah, of course. So um, it becomes really quite pervasive. We're bombarded with images of this ideal body type um and so in western countries uh for women that tends to be fit thin
0: and tanned and tanned yeah yeah
1: does it impact
0: boys as well as
1: girls it does Uh, there's been a lot more research with uh, girls and women than with boys and men but we have some uh evidence that yes men are impacted by this too the the ideal um body in Western culture for men tends to be a fit muscular yeah. body with that tanned with that tanned skin tone
0: right gosh there's so many things for young people to contend with and that's just another one isn't it do you have a view on these fake tanning products because just my personal take is I think how can they be good for you they they smell terrible
1: yeah look this is a tricky one because based on the current evidence um, and you know, Things change all the time. Yeah. But based on current evidence, fake tanning is probably better than deliberate sun exposure sure. because we know that there's a direct link between sun exposure and skin cancer. However, even fake tanning, apart from the, the smell or the colour and, and those other um, issues, uh, fake tanning maintains that idea that tanned skin is the ideal you know, body. Yeah. That's the ideal appearance. So people may inadvertently try to achieve that tanned skin if they continue to see it out there and portrayed as as beautiful um whether that be through fake tanning or deliberate sun exposure um so so it is a difficult one um i guess like the body image movement that says you know you can have health at at any size yeah the the sort of uh, body positivity um we really want people to be able to accept who they are and their natural skin tone so that they can protect themselves from sunburn feel good about their yeah. appearance and and lower their risk for skin cancer
0: I often think that as women we've come a long way but we've yet got so far to go where's the message that it's okay to accept yourself as you are I mean obviously the embrace that you mentioned the or the body positive movement is is a step in that direction but I feel like there's there's a lot to do in that space still.
1: I agree, and I think we need leadership from people that are in the public eye to to say, this is okay, it's okay mm. to be who you are, and that the images we see all of the time are not easily attained. they may not be attainable at all. yeah, so I, I think the more we get that message out there, and the more we can model for. Our daughters or or young people that we are comfortable in our own skin yes um, that 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 that's going to be really important too because sometimes inadvertently when we worry about whether we've got our makeup on or all of those little things which which you know are a normal part of, of mm-hmm. life but when we do that we are being observed and so we I think we need to be really mindful of sort of the the message that we may send not just with our words but with our actions
0: absolutely you're so right it kind of I guess it starts with us, doesn't it? Modelling to our children and their friends and the people we come into contact with. Amanda, for parents of teenagers, and we've talked about all these influences that they're subject to, do you have some advice or some helpful strategies for parents to talk to their teenagers about in terms of looking after their skin?
1: sure look uh full disclosure my children haven't reached teenage years yet so this is my my academic plan absolutely um not based on on my lived experience yet um but we do know that it can be really difficult to convince teenagers that long-term health consequences more important than the short term it is difficult that's my lived experience okay excellent so uh well not excellent that that's your experience but excellent that i'm on on the right track there so you know um convincing teenagers that it's more important to look after their skin than to look the way they want to look Mm. for a particular event or with a particular group and fitting in um is a real challenge so again at an early stage we can model sun protection Mm -hmm. Probably before they reach teenage years in in earlier childhood, but for our adolescents, I think we can uh, teach media literacy. Yeah. So what I mean by that is learning about how the media constructs these images mm. and these messages um, to help teenagers understand that it doesn't reflect real life. Absolutely, what isn't isn't real life. That there's lighting. That there's makeup that there's photoshopping of images and even filters on photos that are shared on social media and so on so that they can understand that if they don't measure up to that, that's okay and, in fact, that's to be expected. So um, we've actually found with uh, young adults that increasing their media literacy led to decreases in their body dissatisfaction. They felt more comfortable with their skin tone and with their body shape when they understood that, you know, these images that they're constantly comparing themselves to um, don't reflect they're not a real. real body.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I must say the schools, I think, are doing some good work in this space now. They, the school that my children attend, have uh, they bring in experts to talk about exactly these issues and um, encourage them to become critical consumers of the media
1: fantastic Mm. i think there are many benefits to that uh, in addition to to the the skin tone issue but uh, it certainly is part of a broader broader issue and it's great to see it getting some attention
0: so amanda to wrap up has the covid pandemic impacted your work at all um look it has but not in
1: a significant way Mm -hmm. compared to what many other people have gone through um the main impact of covid was actually on my teaching we moved very quickly to to online learning and i saw some students really struggle with that so there was certainly an increase in workload from the academic perspective for students being isolated and not necessarily having the resources at that early stage of life in terms of large space or um you know high quality internet connections yeah absolutely Uh, they certainly felt felt that um in terms of our research we were able to move a lot of it online Okay, so we kept, that's good. we kept that going um, as much as we could. And, of course, conference travel disappeared very yeah. quickly. Um, I don't think it was necessarily all bad, though. We actually started meeting online and attendance went up because people didn't have to be available for two or three days. They could be available for a three-hour meeting without leaving their home. So it's not the same as face-to-face, but there were some benefits in terms of including people who may not have always Mm. been able to easily attend some of those those meetings and workshops which was which was one
0: positive yeah I think you're absolutely right I think nothing replaces face to face but the fact that people can gather and still have a constructive meeting and it actually saves a lot of time and money travel time um, it's good for the environment because people aren't catching planes everywhere so there's definitely some upside.
1: Yeah, and I, I think some of that will be maintained, or I hope I hope it will. Where I think we will still get together face to face, but perhaps less often.
0: Who inspires you, Amanda? Uh,
1: look, I, I've been thinking a little bit about about this question. You gave me a heads up that you might ask, um, and the people who really inspire me are actually the everyday people. I meet through my research, the people who um, are living with cancer, caring for someone with cancer or advocating for change, for improvements to uh, health services or or treatments um, or the the supports that are available for people with cancer. There are so many stories that just really um, inspire me as to the way that people take a negative situation and turn it into something really meaningful and something that um, can benefit other people.
0: Oh, that's lovely. And it must, um, as you say, it inspires you to keep doing what you're doing.
1: Yes, actually, the the best part of my job is getting to talk to people and and to work alongside some
0: some remarkable people. So very, very fortunate. Oh, well, thank you for, for doing that. I mean, it's wonderful to have people like you who are looking after us. And the final question that I like to ask all my guests, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be?
1: Okay, so the first one would be to engage in cancer screening. And this may be a bit of a cheat answer because it's probably uh, captures quite a few behaviours, but uh, the skin checks are really mm-hmm. important. Um, breast screening... Um, cervical cancer uh, screening and the colorectal cancer yep. screening where you get set, sent the FOBT kit in the mail. Uh, if you're in the age group that is eligible for those screening, um, those screens, please participate yep. because, uh, you know, as we said earlier, picking up uh, a cancer at an early stage vastly improves improves your outcome. So the first thing would be to participate in those cancer uh, screens, even though they may be uncomfortable, Um The second would be um, there are so many health behaviours and I think sometimes we get overwhelmed by all of that. I should do all of these things. So I really like to encourage people to choose one thing, something that they enjoy because if it's something that is achievable and something enjoyable, we're much more likely to maintain that over time. So it could be, you know, cooking more healthy meals, Uh, it could be increasing exercise, Um, it could be something for cognitive health, like we talked about learning a language or an instrument or something along those lines. But choosing one health behaviour and making a small change that will stick in the long term and if it involves other people all the better because then you've got those social benefits too. So not a specific suggestion but perhaps a recommendation to choose one thing and to work on that.
0: I think the research shows that if you choose say for example exercise was the one thing that can often motivate you to make changes in other areas of your life as well like eating more healthy meals or something like that. So it's definitely a great recommendation and one that's easy to get your head around, I think.
1: Yeah, look we um, success is quite rewarding. so if we <laughs> if we're successful with a behavior change, then we're more likely to try, to do something else and to, to build on that. Um, so so certainly taking something that's achievable um, and something that's hopefully also enjoyable as well as uh, healthy for you um, is, is a good first step that will hopefully lead to many others to follow.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And that was Dr. Amanda Hutchinson, clinical psychologist, teacher and researcher at the University of South Australia, generously sharing her time and knowledge with us. I hope you found some useful takeaways in that interview. For me, I think I'll be more diligent about checking the UV index and taking appropriate action when it is over three. I do know on the Bureau of Meteorology, the BOM um, website or app that I use, it does have the UV index. Listed there for each location. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you found today's interview interesting or of use, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, that helps people find my podcast. You can subscribe to Vibrant Lives Podcast on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and Google Podcasts. And you can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast. And very shortly I'll be launching my new website and I'm so excited. I've been working on this for quite some time with the excellent folk at Clever Fox Creative. So I'll keep you updated on when that is about to launch. In the meantime, if you would like to contact me and ask any questions or request any guests that you'd like me to interview please DM me via social media or you can contact me via my website, which is still at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.